Good morning, friends, those in the room, those joining us online. I'm glad you tuned in for this morning's message. We are continuing this series conspicuously titled, I Didn't Say That. And really what we're trying to do is unpack some of those common sayings, some of those supposed verses, those things attributed often to Jesus or to the Bible that in fact were never said by Jesus or never found in the Bible. They masquerade as popular Christian wisdom, but in fact, when you dig a little bit deeper, they're not really there. And the reason for doing that is because Sometimes underneath these things are reflections on the person and the character of God that can become impediments in us getting to know what God is really like. And today we are looking at one of the classics. Imagine the situation. Somebody's facing adversity. They're having trouble at work, maybe a problem at home. They've run into financial difficulties. You know what it's like. And then a friend comes along during their time of adversity, a colleague who wants to say something encouraging. And they start with a pep talk, and that's all right. You can face this. You can get through. You're tough. And then they lean into it. And we know this. We know this because the Bible promises that God never gives us more than we can handle. Hands up if you heard that. God never gives us more than we can handle. And that's intended to be a comforting statement because we receive it as a promise. Well, if God said it, it must be true. Things will never get too bad. They'll never be unbearable. Life will somehow be manageable. The problem is, or really two problems, the first is, for some people, life does look pretty unmanageable. And here's the other problem. The Bible, in fact, never really says that at all. In fact, if you spend some time reading through the Bible, one of the things that you'll discover is that it's filled with the stories of people who've been given far more than they could possibly ever handle. To name one fact, just to state the obvious, one of the things we're not handling particularly well is dying. Right? I mean, everybody in the Bible, maybe with a few little exceptions, but just about everybody ends this life underground. I mean, you can imagine the council coming to Abel, said, Abel, don't worry about your brother Cain. God never gives us more than we can handle. Oops. Sorry about that. Or, hey, Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, I, I wouldn't worry too much about King David and his affections for your wife Bathsheba. God never gives you a, oops. Or, or maybe John the Baptist. Hey, John, don't worry about Herod with his machete. God never gives you more than, and on it goes. I mean, you could start with Jesus and go right on down the line. The Bible is mostly about people whose faith in God not only doesn't prevent them going through suffering, but sometimes is actually the cause of their suffering. And one of the things you never see in the Bible is them trying to console each other by saying, God will never give you more than you can handle. Jesus himself ends his life on a cross. His disciples take up the cause. And the first thing that happens after they take up the cause of the gospel is they're arrested and they're beaten. Listen to these words. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
By the way, that's one of the early descriptions of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. They were people of the name. They were sometimes called people of the way and people of the name. When Paul is called out by Jesus, the first thing that Jesus says is, now I'm going to show Paul how much he will suffer for my name. And then it is probably in what is probably one of the most inspiring and sobering chapters in the Bible. In fact, if you have your Bible or your devices, let me invite you to flip to it and just leaf through it. In Hebrews, in chapter 11, we are told in kind of a catalog-like list about one human being after another who was given more than they could handle. And you would think that that these descriptions and these things happening to real people, they would, they would sober us about this idea that we're never given more than we can handle. Some were tortured, some faced jeers, some faced flogging and, and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Just awful, grisly stuff. Death by the sword. They went around wearing sheepskins and goatskins, destitute persecuted. The world, the world just wasn't worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains. They lived in caves and holes in the ground. And what do you think they would imagine of a statement like that? God never, never gives you more than you can handle. It makes me wonder sometimes when I hear it bandied around, have you, have you actually read the Bible? <laughs> the people God uses seem to have less concern about how much suffering they might endure than they do about having a cause that is worth suffering for and a Savior that's worth suffering with. And really, that's what you and I have. We have a cause worth suffering for, and we have a Savior worth suffering with. I'm going to invite you to flip in your Bible now to to 1 Corinthians. Because the the verse that most people are going to cite when they reference this popular but kind of erroneous saying is found here. Only it doesn't say God will never give you more than you can handle. The verse comes from this letter that Paul writes to the city in Corinth. People usually misquote what Paul said. Here's the actual verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. We just sung about it. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful. But he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted... He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say you should expect minimal suffering in the world because God is never going to give you more than you can bear. What he does say is, don't let yourself slide into sin. Don't don't just rationalize it all away. Because God will not allow temptation, not suffering, God will not allow temptation to come your way without providing a way through or a way out. I want you to imagine 
being in the audience when that letter was first read. You're living in the city of Corinth. Corinth is a, a port city, one of the thriving metropolises of the ancient world. And it was notorious for a bunch of things. It was notorious for its greed. It was notorious for its rampant sexual promiscuity, for its idolatry, for its arrogance, for its selfishness. Corinth was where people went to pursue temptation. This was Temptation Island in the ancient world. Kind of a weird thing about us, so I don't know, uh, certainly about me. Once I want to be tempted, once I give in to the desire to be tempted, I can find all kinds of ways of rationalizing away the thing that I am about to do. I can even drag God into it. Let me give you a silly example. Confession time. I love Krispy Kreme donuts. Right? And I pass by it from time to time. I mean, there just there can't be very many left in Canada, but one of them is kind of right here. It's on Mavis Road in the Heartland Center, and you're all nodding like you didn't already know that, right? And sometimes there's that red neon light that lights up that says hot now, which means they're coming right off the production line. In fact, there's actually a little app you can download for your phone that will tell you when the hot donuts are coming. It's, uh, I don't know, it's like a crack dealer in your pocket. There, there it is. And so when I'm feeling tempted, I actually throw this fleece out in front of God. That's an Old Testament reference for, for asking God to, to test whether it's your will. Gideon threw a fleece out on the lawn and said, if I, if I wake up in the morning, the ground is covered with dew, but the fleece is dry, I know it's God's will. And, and he gets God's will, but he doesn't like it. So the next morning, he soaks the fleece and he throws it out on the lawn again and says, if I wake up and the fleece is dry and everything else is wet, then I, I'll know that it's God's will. And, and on it goes. So here is the fleece. I say, listen, I'm I'm going to drive around the shop, and if there's an open parking spot right in front of it, I'll know that it's, it's God's will. It's, it's Krispy Kreme time. And sure enough, after the seventh time around, there was a spot. It was right there. <laughs> Our cat. We have a beautiful little, well, not little. That's the problem. We have a calico cat, a mixture of you know, white and black and brown, uh, not very athletic, not an athletic cat at all. In fact, a few years ago, we put her on the scale and realized she was topping 20 pounds, and that's okay for a mountain lion. For a domestic short hair, that's, that's not good. So, you know, we had followed the vet's advice years earlier, which says normally with a cat, you just fill the bowl and whenever it's empty, and they monitor their own feeding. But not our cat, not Prada. What an ostentatious name for a cat, a Prada. She was surreptitiously eating herself into oblivion. And we tried to explain to her, now Prada, you're, you're ruining your health. But she didn't care. She didn't want to be delivered from temptation. I mean, we, we love that cat, but she has no moral fiber whatsoever. She, she is a slave to her desires. In our day, temptation has largely become kind of a punchline to a joke. We see it on dessert menus in restaurants. We see it in reality TV shows. There was a show, wasn't there, called Temptation Island? 
Nobody's going to admit they watched it, but there it was, a reality show. But temptation, temptation does a terrible thing. It, it, it unravels your humanity by convincing you that you are just an appetite or a series of appetites to be gratified. God doesn't do that. God will give you a way out. I mean, that's what Paul is suggesting here. He'll, he'll give you a group of supportive friends and fellowship if you're an addict. He'll give you the opportunity to confess and come clean. He'll give you another person that you can confess to and walk through life with and be accountable to. He'll give you a friend that will pray for you. A sense of conviction that says, run, don't just walk, run away from this situation or this relationship. God will give you warning bells, the effect of your own conscience being set off in your mind saying that is the wrong place to go, the wrong path to take, the wrong group to be with. By the way, one of the reasons that small group life is so important to us in the life of the church is that we believe that that's a place where most of those things can happen. And it reflects the creation of, of God, the created desire, the order, because God didn't intend us to do this thing alone. And part of the answer for dealing with temptation is being in a group of people who get to deal with it together. The danger when I settle in and I do this alone, and when I really want something, is that I'm not usually looking for a way out anymore. And I don't have anybody else reminding me of how important it is that I do so. And so as, as your pastor, as a friend, as somebody who struggles with temptation as well, I want to pause for just a moment here and, and offer you a word. If you feel like you've been playing with, with temptation in some area of your life, maybe it's, I don't know, financial dishonesty. Uh, maybe it's flirtation at the office. It started out kind of as an innocent thing, but it's headed in a bad way. Maybe, maybe it's about pursuing some kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage that you know is destructive. Maybe there's a habit and you realize that it's turning into an addiction. Maybe it's refusing to be generous with your resources. Maybe it's a pattern of lying or deceit. It started small, but it's not small anymore. Whatever it is. Folks, God is not mocked. God is not mocked, and sin will corrode your soul if you let it. It will ruin your character. It, it, it will destroy the relationships of your life and your relationship with God. It, it will destroy your eternity if you let it. What Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians is, God is faithful in these things. And he'll offer you a way out. But guess what I'm asking in this moment is that you will make that first decision, that primary decision, that you will do what it takes to be delivered through the faithfulness of God so that your life isn't mastered by anything unworthy of who God made you to be, by someone unworthy power, some temptation, some sin. In fact, I'm going to ask everybody just for a quiet moment just to do a bit of a heart check right now. And if that's you, maybe you just want to whisper the prayer that says, 
God, would you help me in this? And would you help me through this? And God, I can't do it alone. So if that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, God won't let you be tempted without giving you a way out. If the most frequently cited passage about the title of the sermon, God never gives you more than you can bear, isn't in fact about bearing through suffering at all, then it still kind of hangs the question out there, what do we do with people, maybe us, when it feels like we've been given more than we can handle? For that one, I'm going to direct you to another passage in Scripture, but it's still in the Corinthian correspondence. But this time it's in 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter. And he, he sets it up. He writes towards the very beginning, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 4. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. What an amazing passage. And I want to start just by noticing how, how Paul speaks of God as the father of what? Of all compassion and the God of all comfort. See, one, one of the problems, and it's a deep theological problem with that idea that God will never give you more than you can handle, is it makes it sound like God is up there in heaven dispensing suffering and pain and evil. And he's just not giving us so much that we can't deal with it. And lots of people think of God that way. But the Bible's kind of clear that God hates evil, that he hates suffering. And he's not sitting up there in heaven and says, I think I'll give this person an abusive father, and I'll, I'll give that person terminal cancer, and I'm going to give those families, I don't know, uh, more than they can handle, a plane crash that wipes out their relatives. I mean, Paul is quite deliberate in how he describes God. He's not the father of evil and the dispenser of pain. He's the father of compassion. And the God not just of comfort, but the God of all comfort. And it's not just that. Not only does God comfort us in our suffering, he uses that and he uses us in allowing us to bring that same comfort and healing and hope into the lives of other people. Think about that for a second. That the very scars that you carry around, the wounds that you have, the things that you most often want to hide, addiction, loss, grief, failure, whatever it is, that those ironically and paradoxically, in the gospel and through the power of the cross, that those become the stories that we tell and the bridges that we build that allow us to connect with the lives of suffering people to say, you're not alone. You're not alone. In fact, people who are willing to have learned to share their suffering together experience a kind of healing in community that others who share only their successes and their victories will never really find. It's an amazing thing. And so I'm going to ask you to do something now that I think I've probably never done before. And we're going to do it here in the room, and we're going to do it online. I'm going to go through some of the categories of human adversity 
that I know have afflicted people. And when I'm done, I'm going to ask if any of those categories apply to you, if you've ever felt troubled in that way or felt pain. And then I'm going to ask you to stand up. Now, some of you are already worried, but uh, we're in here together. We're in this together. And I want you to know that, that you can trust us together in this. So I'm going to ask that wherever you are this morning, whether you're with us in the room or whether you're with some small group in your own room or whether you're alone, if you're alone, maybe you just want to throw this out in the chat when something is said that resonates with you. You can just say, that's me. That's me. I'm standing. Okay? And I do this for a reason. Because there are people here this morning, there are people watching online, there will be people watching in the weeks ahead who need to know that they are not alone because they feel so profoundly isolated and that sense of isolation has only grown over these past 16 months. And I'm asking people with troubles today to stand as a gift to other people so that we can be a community in fellowship together, the fellowship of suffering. So here we go. When you hear it, if it resonates with you in your life, I'm going to invite you to stand wherever you are, or to chat, or to do both. If you have ever suffered from deep grief, or loss, or loneliness, would you stand? If somebody that you love has ever been troubled by an addiction like alcohol, or substance abuse, or sex, or gambling, would you stand? If you've ever been through the pain of betrayal, or divorce, or broken family, I'm going to invite you to stand. If you've ever experienced the death of a spouse, or a child, or a loved one, if you've ever suffered through a miscarriage, or you know the aching pain of wanting to have children and not being able to have your own, if you've known pain in, in the vocational world, the failure at work, or being terminated or jobless, would you stand? If you've been through cancer, or heart disease, or any other difficult heart condition, and we have people in the room that are standing all over the place. Some of them have been up and down multiple times, but it's okay, keep standing if, if you were standing. If you've ever felt like a failure as a parent, if you've ever felt like you're the victim of emotional or physical or sexual abuse or assault, if somebody that you love has ever suffered from anxiety or depression or mental health issues, would you stand what? Everybody went up there. Of course we have. And if you've ever known any of these things in some way or other experienced suffering in your life that you could not fix, I'll invite you to stand now. And to everybody who's standing, and to those maybe who aren't, I want to tell you this, that everybody is fighting a battle, and often it's a battle that only they and God know. And I want you to hear this, that you are not alone. You are not alone in this. We are the church. We are the fellowship of the troubled heart. Okay, you can go ahead and be seated.
The church is the fellowship of the troubled heart. I mean, it's lots of other things, but, but it certainly is that. We walk together, and Paul promises that as we do that, that God is with us. And we look at each other, and, and sometimes we think, you know, they're so smart and successful and good-looking. My goodness. And, and, and we say things to each other that, that affirm all of that, and that's important. But, but sometimes we also need to recognize that there are or there is underneath the surface a lot more simmering away in the cauldron of our lives than we admit. So I'm, I'm going to do one more thing tomorrow, this morning. Uh, well, not just one more thing. I've got more time, right? But I want to do this because we haven't done this in a long time. And, and I want to do this, and I think we can do it safely. When is the last time we actually stood up and greeted one another in church? Okay. Um, but I'm going to do this with a particular purpose in mind. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to invite you to stand up, not move all around the room, but just in a close circle of those who are in your immediate proximity and just recognizing the distance that you have, and that's okay. Um, but I'm going to ask you to say one of two things. Um, you can either say this, the peace of Christ be with you. Okay. That is... Uh, that is an ancient expression. The church has used that for centuries, both as a sign of solidarity, that we are together in Christ, but also as a word of encouragement that says that we want the peace, the blessing of God in your life. Because God knows some of us need it right now. So you can either say that, the peace of Christ be with you, or if you want, you can say this, you think your problems are bad, you should hear about mine. Okay, I'll let you choose. But the point is, I want you to remind each other that you are not alone and that we are in this together. So I'm going to ask you to take a minute to stand up and to greet each other. Okay, everyone. Okay, everyone. Let me invite you to find your seat again. Those of you who were doing that online, maybe there was somebody in the room that you were able to exchange greetings with. Maybe you were able to do it online. Um, whether you're here live or live online, um, the importance of doing that is that it confronts one of the great illusions of our culture, and that's that I'm the only one with problems. Everybody else seems to be doing great. Why am I such a disaster? And I was thinking again, I, I've discovered, have you ever heard of Instagram, anybody? It's this new thing. No, it's not new, but I've discovered it a little bit, and I'm sifting through posts, and I was thinking about Instagram posts that you never really see, like, I just picked up grandma from jail today, I hope the third time's the charm, or, or you know, here's a picture of me getting fired at work, those are the security guards escorting me out, LOL, um, or my girlfriend just broke up with me by text this week, here's the text, you know, that... Uh, by and large, the things that I see, at least on Instagram, are, 
are celebration things. Um, some of the messy stuff, you know, it just doesn't always get posted. Not occasionally, I suppose, but, but not often. Where do you go when you're not handling it? You know, when life is not neat and tidy? I would hope that one of the very first words out of the mouths of Jesus' people is, I go to my church. I'm afraid for some people that's, that's not the answer. It really ought to be. We are the fellowship of the troubled heart. We're not the gathering of the triumphant. I mean, yes, we're triumphant in Christ, but that doesn't mean that we're always victorious in our lives. We're the fellowship of the troubled heart. That's what the church is. That's what the church has always been. And here's a strange truth about a cruciform life, uh, a cross-shaped life, a, a life that, that is sort of shaped like the life of Jesus, that finds its mysterious heart in the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's the truth about it. If you have suffered some major hurt or major pain in your life, you have a major gift to offer. And I don't mean that as a sort of pick-me-up. Uh, that doesn't take away your pain. But it does allow the possibility that, that that pain gets redeemed. If you have ever been through a major piece of suffering, you have a contribution to make to the lives of others, but you only get to make it when we get to be honest about what we're going through. And for reasons that I just don't fully understand, shared pain creates a community in a way that untroubled triumph never does. That doesn't mean your suffering is always manageable, but it means that your suffering is always meaningful. And there's a world of difference. Let me, let me give you an example. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul describes his troubles. And I want you to think, on a scale of 1 to 10, just listen to this description. How would you rate the kind of trouble that Paul is in? This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is what Paul says. We don't want you to be uninformed about the troubles that we've experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. So much so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how much trouble is that? That's right up there, right? That's a 9, that's a 10. Really bad troubles, that would be the maximum that we could endure. And if God never gave anybody more than they could handle, that would be the limit. But Paul says that's not the limit. He says their troubles weren't just what they could endure. Their troubles were more than they could endure. And they weren't just a little bit more than what they could endure. No, that they were far beyond what they could endure. But read on just a little bit to the second half of, of verse 9 in 2 Corinthians 1. But this happened, Paul said, so that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. The question in Paul's mind wasn't, how much can I handle? The question is, what is it that God can handle? And it's never been that God won't give you more than you can handle. It's always kind of been that God will help you to handle whatever it is that you've been given. 
When I hear that phrase, God never gives you more than you can handle, I sometimes think, you know, of course he does. Of course he does. I presided over three funerals last week. Tell those families that God never gives them more they can handle. We all die. I mean, every day people die. And if you rely only on yourself when it comes to death, death, let's face it, death is probably going to win that one. Now I know we live in an innovation world and we live in one of the innovation capitals of the world and and people, they actually think we're close to solving this one, right? We do uh, telomerase therapy. We've decided that aging is actually encoded, and if we can crack the code, and we can hack the code, and, and we can prevent ourselves from aging. One doctor who runs a, a, a healthcare hedge fund, given millions of dollars to this, said recently that thermodynamically, there should be no reason why we cannot defer entropy indefinitely. And what does that mean? It means that we can end aging forever. We're this close, he said. Yeah. But for the moment, anyway, the death rate hovers there kind of close to 100%. For the moment, it's more than you or I can handle, but not for God. And Paul throws this in almost like an afterthought, so that we would rely on God who raises the dead. (laughs) You know, if you love somebody who's died somebody who's dying, that that there is nothing that you can say that would be better than that. When you say it, how you say it matters, but that we rely on God who raises the dead. Boy, that's good news. He comforts us. He comforts us in our troubles. He can bring comfort. Who can bring comfort? The God who raises the dead. In his universe, in his care, Death itself is an enemy that is destroyed. And so there's comfort and there's meaning. Just a couple of minutes left. And I wanted to think with you about how God does that or how he can do that. How does God comfort? And some, some people would say immediately he comforts us in our prayers and in the words of Scripture. That's why keeping him alive in our minds is such an important thing. In a worship song, in a, in a hymn, I think about a day I walked into the hospital, the family who were absolutely dealing with something that they could not handle. Just a little sign that they'd put on the wall that says, it is well. And that old hymn, it is well, it is well with my soul. Through our thoughts, God brings comfort in our tears. Maybe there's a whisper that says, even now, even now, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. I'm not going to be afraid of any evil because I'm not alone. You are with me. Maybe it comes through acknowledging the reality of Jesus' own suffering. Maybe it comes through acknowledging the victory of his own resurrection. But very often, perhaps most often, God does it through other people. There's just something about about seeing another human face, hearing another human voice, reflecting and offering the words that God needs us to hear. It's why being part of the community of God's people matters. It's, it's why it's been so hard these past 16 months not to be together when we need to be together. And yeah, we do Zoom, and we do it great, right? Hats off, MCBC. You do Zoom great. 
and you'll keep doing some Zoom, and, and we'd love to be able to offer that. And we'll keep doing some online worship, but don't you long to be together, like really together, to sit across a table and see a face and be reminded that you are not alone? So very often, the answer to that question that God won't give you more than you can handle is, is not that everything happens for a reason and not that it's going to get better, I promise, and, and not that, uh, that somehow that, that God intended all of this for a reason. I mean, some of that stuff might be true, but very often the answer is just me too. I mean, courageously, me too. You're not alone. And in saying that, I don't, I don't pretend, nor should you pretend to, to know what another person's road is like, what their suffering is like, but there's meaning to it. And God never wastes a hurt. He never wastes your pain. A parent who's lost a child, cancer survivors, addicts whose lives have been just destroyed, sitting now in a circle of folded chairs, trying to put it back together. People who have been hurt, even hurt by the church, people without a job, people without a home, people going through rejection and divorce. Me too, me too, me too. Because we're the fellowship of the broken heart. And we gather underneath the shadows of the cross where a crucified Jesus says, me too. Me too. The invitation for today is, is going to be a simple one. In just a moment, we're going to spend a bit of time in prayer. And as we do that, I'm going to invite you just to pause and reflect a bit. To identify that thing that still lurks there inside of you, that that hurt or that pain. Maybe it goes back a long time and it is just never really settled, never healed. Maybe it's, it's recent, as, recent as this week. And I ask you to bring it to God, to grieve, to lament, to question, to anguish, to trust, to pray, but not to let that wound go to waste. Maybe you want to ask God who can... Who can I be in a position to help this week? And then this week you're on the lookout for somebody who's hurting, maybe in the same area that you're struggling with right now, and you write them a note, you give them a call, you listen, and you care. I I don't want to hear in the days ahead that there was a person who went through all of this and they felt completely alone. So this week, I mean, let's just, if we can, let's be one giant small group for each other. And if somebody looks or sounds or you know that they are alone or afraid or hurting you, you come alongside. That's the invitation. I'm going to ask God to bring comfort into this moment, into every hurting heart. And we're going to spend some time in prayer. And if you're sitting next to somebody in the room here or whatever room where you're joining us and, and you know there's been something in their life and you just want to place a hand on their shoulder, you can do that right now. And just let them know that you're there and that you care.
you join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, now we join together in prayer for everybody who hurts. We pray for everyone who grieves. We pray for everyone who fears. For those who are holding regret. We pray for the sad and the sick and the silent. We pray for the confused and the alone. We pray to you, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort. The God who raises the dead. Would you raise up what is dead in us? Bring comfort and care into this room and into every living room, every kitchen, every office, every heart. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.